We're here at Astrotech Space Operations in Florida with the European Space Agency Project Manager for Solar Orbiter, Cesar Garcia. Cesar, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. One of the things I'm wondering right off the bat, could you tell us a little bit about the mission for Solar Orbiter? Okay, well, Solar Orbiter, the name says it all. Uh, uh, Solar Orbiter is a spacecraft. Uh, the spacecraft will orbit the sun and uh, with the purpose of investigating, and we'll go to that a bit later on, investigating what happens uh, at the sun from a vantage position of uh, getting close to it and also changing the orbital plane. Changing the orbital plane uh, will mean that we will be able to also observe what happens uh, on, this, on the poles of the sun, the so south and the north poles of the sun. It's kind of interesting to think of the sun having poles. Yeah, um, well, we never saw them. Uh, there were many years ago, uh, we launched a NASA-ESA joint mission called Ulysses, and that spacecraft also got out of the orbital plane, but it didn't have optical instruments. And actually, it went far away from, from the sun. But it does have uh, poles, and scientists believe that the poles will give us tips on uh, about the 11-year cycle that we can observe with respect to sunspots and overall sun variability. Which is really important. And why you have so many instruments on Solar Orbiter, I think you have 10 instruments? Yeah, there are 10 instruments. And we classify the instruments into major categories. One is what we call in situ instruments. And the other one is remote instruments. In situ instruments, and we have four of those, try to measure the environment around the spacecraft. And that will give us tips uh, when we are far away from the sun or when we are close uh, from the sun on what really, uh, what the particles the sun are emitting. Typically, they are charged particles and with different levels of energy. And we will also see magnetic fields coming from the sun into the location of the spacecraft. Uh, on top of that, we have these uh, other six remote instruments, and they will let us uh, know what's happening, what the sun is emitting, the light the sun is emitting. And the sun is emitting light from uh, many locations, and we will be also looking at the various locations. We will be looking straight down into the sun. We'll be looking at the rim of the sun. We will be blocking the uh, disk of the sun and looking at uh, what happens in the, in the corona. And we will also be looking at the scattered light uh, far away in the heliosphere, uh, uh, with one of the, oh, the uh, by, by the way, by, the, uh, by one instrument which was developed by NASA. Uh, so the combination of those uh, two sets of instruments will give us uh, unprecedented um, linkage between the various data which uh, which are uh, which is coming from the sun, and 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 that again I think is one of the key features of the mission because uh, other missions they focus more either on remote. Uh, instruments or on in situ instruments, and this unique combination of uh, both types is, is uh, quite specific for Solar Orbiter. And that means that you can get data. I mean, you go on this kind of wide elliptical orbit that's you know comes you know, fluctuates between close and far away, mm -hmm. but you're getting data during the entire orbit. Yeah. Well, the orbit is uh, when you. When you get too close to this, and actually you have to slow down your spacecraft because it's already orbiting like the Earth it would be. Uh, the orbit has been designed uh, very specifically uh, for that purpose. So we get close, uh, not initially, so the first couple of years we are still relatively far away from the Sun, and we will use uh, gravity assist maneuvers, uh, typically by Venus, to yeah. uh, actually slow down the spacecraft and get the perihelion, which is the minimum distance between the spacecraft and the Sun, lower and lower. Mm -hmm. And yes, the combi that combination allows us to, uh, again, get uh, 
let's say, features from the sun, both in situ and remote, at, at various distances from the sun. Then I lost the second part of the question, <laughs> uh, which was... Uh, uh, well, I was just thinking that it's, it's interesting that you get the data yeah. through the whole, the whole yeah, trip. Yeah, okay, yeah. that part. Now, respect to data. Now, respect to getting data, this is uh, really one of the challenges of the mission because, again, the in-situ instruments, they gather very uh, rel relatively small amount of data and that it's okay in terms of transmitting that data from the spacecraft down to, to, to the Earth. But the remote instruments, they are taking fantastic pictures, they will be taking fantastic pictures with lots and lots of pixels. And the, uh, we don't, I mean, we are so far away from the Earth that we cannot transmit the data down. And that means that we have to limit the time in every orbit that the remote instruments can actually be taking uh, pictures. Now, of course, once we're in orbit, we try to uh, get as much as possible, but the original plan is to have uh, three windows of, um, of about 10 days where these remote uh, instruments will be taking images from the sun. Uh, one when we are uh, on the south side of the sun, one when we are close to the equator of the sun, and uh, let's say at, at perihelion, and then one we are on the north side of the sun. So we have an orbit which is around 150 to 180 days, so like half a year, mm -hmm. and only one-sixth of the time our um, remote sensing instruments will be able to take images. And, and the reason for that, again, is that we don't have the, the link, the capacity yeah. to send this data down to ground. It, it's kind of like when you have to uh, wait till you get home and you get Wi-Fi access to download heavy apps for your phone. Mm -hmm. uh, you can only transmit this data when you're close to Earth, is that right? No, we, um, it, it is like uh, when you get close to home and then you notice that the, the, the downlink range is increasing. Yeah. Uh, we are using a huge antenna for eight hours a day. Uh, the antenna mm -hmm. will be based in, in Argentina, it's based in Argentina, and it's a 35 meter uh, dish. Uh, and yet the amount of data that we, uh, this one will gather is, is very, very, very small because mm -hmm. of, the far, uh, of the great distances. Mm -hmm. now, the data does vary uh, along the orbit. When we are close to the Earth, we are able to transmit about a bit less than 30 gigabits per day. Mm. Well, 30 gigabit per day is really not a lot. I mean, it's like four gigabytes. It's like two movies, okay? <laughs> uh, but when we are far away, so instead of 30 gigabit per day, we can only download about two gigabit per day. Mm. So, and that combination, you know, far and, and, uh, and, and near allows us to, to transmit all, you know, this data, but we have to put some limitations. And there's also another element, in, and that is that, of course, we take the images when, when we are close to the sun, and that means typically we are far away from, from the Earth, and we have to put that, that data into memory. Mm. So we had to provide with massive memory, and the data, we take it, we, could wait up on the spacecraft for up to six months before mm -hmm. it's downloaded to the Earth. So every day we'll, do, uh, we'll download data which is important, which is, should be current, and we call that low latency data. Mm -hmm. But uh, some of the data we will have to actually wait for several months until we are in a favorable position to uh, downlink, uh, downlink it to the, uh, to the Earth. Sure. Yeah. Now, with all these instruments, you clearly have had to work with a lot of different partners as part of being project manager. Tell us about the partners that you worked with on this particular spacecraft. Yeah. Well, uh, this is a European Space Agency mission, and, and the European Space Agency is, is composed of 22 member states. So that already gives you a flavor of uh, how we, we typically operate in, in most of our missions. Uh, in addition to this, 
this is uh, we have a strong cooperation with NASA, and uh, as this uh, our international partner also uh, provides a different, uh, let's say, relationship and uh, different stakeholders. Uh, uh, within Europe, uh, the way in which we provide the instruments for science missions typically entails that our, our member states fund the various instruments. So we interact with the various funding agencies, and every instrument has one or several uh, key investigators. We call them principal investigators. Now, the relationship, uh, it's, also, it's also a relationship, relationship with the science community, and here we have Again, like two different science communities. Uh, so there are science a science community related to in situ magnetometers or plasma scientists, and then we also have other scientists, uh, other uh, different science community, which relates to uh, uh, remote observations, mm -hmm. X-ray emissions from the sun, coronographs, uh, or uh, you know experts in heliophysics. So from that viewpoint, uh, you know it's it's always uh, interesting and, and sometimes a bit of a challenge to be able to put the interest of everybody in the context, in the overall context of the mission. And this is what we do, and this is, you know, you need to have a common objective and good faith mm -hmm. to achieve your goals. Mm -hmm. Well, it must feel really good now because everything clearly is here on the spacecraft and, and ready to go. It's got to be a good sense of accomplishment. I think so. I think that uh, overall, you know, when you develop a space mission, there are always many challenges. And there are moments where you don't really know if there is a technical solution for the problems you're facing. Uh, but okay, and then you know, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes uh, teamwork, and now you know, everything is converging or has converged. We had a key milestone, of course, before we shipped the spacecraft here to the Cape, uh, where we checked all the systems, of course also the instruments and all the other uh, systems around, like the launcher services, but also the uh, ground operations. So we checked that everything was okay, and we were confident we could ship the spacecraft down here, and that was already a key achievement. Now, once you move to, uh, well, to the launch phase, then it's like an army. I mean, different armies, they are sort of coming together, uh, and they're pulling together, and sometimes people who you never met, but they've been working on this mission for years, then you get to meet those people, and then you, you realize that Everybody's working to the same goal, and I think this, it, yeah, it's a real sense of accomplishment and, and achievement, yeah. So on launch day, where are you going to be? Well, um, I have an easy job on the launch date. I simply have to say go. I mean, it's, uh, that's, that would be my job. Uh, we will be sitting in one of the uh, base of the Air Force Base facilities. I think they call it the Hangar E. And we will be monitoring, from my position, we will be monitoring how the spacecraft is doing on, on top of the rocket. So through the umbilical cables, we will get uh, very current data on how the spacecraft is doing, and we will be able to send also some telecommands. So we need to make sure that the spacecraft is really ready to, uh, for liftoff. And at the same time, uh, in Darmstadt, there is the Space Operations Center that will have to acquire the spacecraft after separation from the launcher vehicle acquire the location, establish the link, the radio link, and from that moment on, control the spacecraft. So I will be getting the input from those two uh, teams and then reporting that to, uh, to the launch director. So when Solar Orbiter starts to receive data for the first time, mm -hmm. after all the work that you've done on this mission, how's that gonna feel? Well, there is a, yeah, 
let me say, well, first is the first data that you get is a spike. You, it's a very basic thing. You people are looking into a screen, which is basically representing a very flat, noisy line. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, when there is the link established, then there is a spike, a very clear spike on that, uh, which means that there is a, a frequency lock between the spacecraft and the ground antennas. Now, that moment, everybody relaxes because uh, you know if you don't have a spacecraft to to talk to, then <laughs> then you have a problem. Now, from that mo so that moment is a moment of of relaxation, uh, which means that whereas for the launcher people. They're happy now when they achieve the separation of the spacecraft. We still have to wait a little bit mm. until we get that first signal. Uh, that's a great moment. I mean, I had the uh, pleasure of experiencing that in the past, that it's a great moment. Now, the next thing that we get, we have to start doing what we call automatic deployments. We have to start deploying the solar arrays so that we get uh, power. We have to make sure that the uh, uh, onboard propulsion system gets primed that all the valves open properly and that we can control the attitude of the spacecraft. So all of these little milestones happen automatically uh, because it's safer for the mission. But every time any of this happens, it's, it's a great moment. So uh, that takes only a couple of hours and at least the key uh, deployments. Then over the next couple of uh, days, we will be deploying, uh, we have an instrument boom, that it's, it's also one of the key elements that will, uh, some instruments also will have to deploy away from the spacecraft. Uh, and every time we would do one of things, there is a there is a good kick. There is a you know there is a good first is an adrenaline kick, and then there is a good kick when things work out, and all that before you start getting the science data. So I, I think as soon as the instruments are uh, can be switched on, they will start uh, actually getting data, but some of the instruments have to wait several months. Uh, they have to wait several months because they are extremely sensitive to contamination. We call it molecular contamination. Uh, if you buy a car, uh, when you buy it, it has a very special smell. <laughs> to some extent, it's the same with, with, with any machine that we buy. Uh, and that smell means that there are some molecules which are sublimate from the surfaces, and those are detrimental to the, some of the remote instruments. So those will have to wait several months until, until this initial outgassing, we call it, uh, gets really uh, suppressed. Uh, yeah, I can't believe it. The, even the solar orbiter has new new spacecraft smell. Okay, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I use it as a simile. In reality, and because our instruments are extremely sensitive to molecular contamination, every bit that uh, is in the spacecraft was already put in uh, in a vacuum chamber sure. to lose its smell. <laughs> so we 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 call this process baking out. So yeah. we put uh, all the materials, all the components, all the boxes have gone into a vacuum chamber. We warm them up, and then uh, after some time in vacuum, most of that smell that uh, was already lost. Mm. But yet we want to make sure that nothing remains, and mm. that uh, will drive the need of uh, opening the doors of some of the instruments a bit later in the mission. Yeah, perfect. 